Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we are continuing our series for the next three weeks. We'll be in Revelation chapter 3, finishing up the three messages of Jesus to the churches, to the seven churches, the last three now. So Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 6 today. If you don't know where it is, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in the chair in front of you. It's a black book, looks like this. You could turn to page 1090, and it goes into page 1091 here in the pew Bible. Um, After I read, I'm going to ask Lance and on this side, uh, Victor or Justin, if you guys could go after we're done with the scripture reading, if you guys could go to the back and grab the uh, blank handouts. And then if, you, if anyone wants a handout to take notes, they'll just, just raise your hand. They'll be coming down the aisle to pass those out to you for uh, notes this, this uh, morning. But first, let's hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your, your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you do have a few people in Sardis, who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear Listen, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May His word dwell richly among us. Father, we thank You for the gift of reading Your word. We thank You for the gift of You speaking to us, that Your Spirit would speak to the churches is a miracle in and of itself. Thank you for giving us the written text of your holy word that we might hear your voice this morning. Father, we admit that apart from you, we can't understand your word in the way we need to. We can't be convicted. We cannot repent. We cannot trust and obey. So we ask for your help. We trust that you have given us your spirit and that you have promised that you will cause us to walk in all of your ordinances and observe and carefully observe all of your statutes. And so we are leaning now on your Holy Spirit's power to do that this morning. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What if you were in danger and you didn't know it? What if, you're, what if you were in danger and you didn't know it? Let's say you're on the Titanic, the boat that was in, infamously sunk after hitting a glacier or an iceberg. If you were on that boat and you didn't know it, 
Well, you couldn't really feel it because you didn't know it. But what if some people got the warning that it was going to happen? And you didn't know it until it was too late, the boat was sinking, and then you found out that people knew. That some people knew that they were about to hit the ice and that it was going to be a disaster. How would you feel if you knew that someone knew and didn't warn everyone until it was too late? That they ignored the warning and now it cost you, at best, your comfort if you survive, or at worst, your life or the life of your loved ones. Wouldn't that be infuriating? Wouldn't you be angry that no one told you what you should have been told? That obliviousness to the danger is how many Christians live their lives. That might even be how you're living your life this morning. Oblivious to the danger around you or others not warning you of the danger that's around you. Now, if you're not a Christian, you, you, if you're not a Christian, you have either ignored the, the danger of the coming judgment Maybe you've never heard of the coming judgment, or you've heard of it and you've minimized it in your life. But there is a coming disaster for you after death. There is judgment. And if you're a Christian, you too might be trapped in overconfidence, where you're so confident in your Christianity, you're so confident in your place with the Lord in a wrong way that it's dulling you to the real possibility that you might not actually be a Christian that you might actually be judged by God, that you might actually go to the Lord on judgment day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things in your name? Wasn't I a member of the church? Didn't I read your Bible? Didn't I believe the gospel? Didn't I pray the prayer? And then Jesus might say, I never what? I never knew you. Depart from me. You practice, sir. You're you're, you're a worker of iniquity who regularly practices iniquity. As Christians, we want to be alert, we want to be ready, and as members of a Christian church, we want to alert others and warn others so that everyone is alert and ready. But the problem of busyness in our lives dulls us from feeling the danger that we and our church family is in. We get dulled, we get lulled to sleep by the fact that things aren't that terrible. Yeah, I might have some problems in my life, but things aren't that terrible, and we lose the alertness which we desperately need. So what if you were in danger spiritually and you didn't know it? Will Satan trick you this year, this season of your life? Will he trick you into snoozing when you ought to be alert? Or will you hear the sounding alarm of the Lord Jesus? Here's the main goal for this morning. The main goal, it comes from the commands of Jesus here, but the main goal, I think, from this passage is wake up, and stay up. Wake up and stay up so that you conquer Satan's trick for your eternal happiness. Wake up and stay up. That's the main call. That's the main goal. If you're hearing this passage, you need to wake up and you need to stay awake. Wake up and stay up so that you conquer Satan's trickery for your eternal happiness. So the two points of our sermon, point number one is wake up. Point number two, can you guess it? Point number two is what? Stay up, okay? Wake up and stay up. Verses one through three, wake up. Verses four through six, stay up. Okay, we'll cut it right in half. Wake up and stay up. So the first point number one is wake up. Now, I'm getting this command. You're saying, PJ, the text doesn't say wake up. You're right. It doesn't say wake up, but it says something similar to it, and it's in verse two. Here's the command. It says, 
be what? Alert. That's wake up. Stay awake. Stay alert. Jesus is the one addressing the church in verse 1, the church in Sardis. He's addressing the angel who's representing the whole church in Sardis. And he says, I am the one. I have the seven spirits of God, and I hold the seven stars in my right hand. Now, you might remember, what are the seven stars? The seven stars are the seven churches. Okay, so Jesus holds the churches in his hand. Jesus has the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits represents the Holy Spirit. Jesus has the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ in Romans chapter 8. And so Jesus has the Holy Spirit. He holds the churches and he, say, he says to the church, be alert. Because in verse 1, he says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. So he, the command is be alert. There's actually five commands. Let me, say, let me point out the five commands under this wake up point, okay? Five commands. I'm summarizing these five commands as wake up. Here they are. Look at verse two. Be alert. Second command, strengthen what remains. The third command is in verse three. Remember. The fourth command is in verse three. Um, keep it. Remember then what you have received and heard. The fourth command is keep it. And the fifth command is What? In verse 3, repent. All of that is wake up. Be alert. Strengthen what remains. Remember how you have received things from the Lord. Keep what you have received from the Lord and repent. If you do these five things, that's what waking up is. So that's going to be my application of point one. We'll we'll, we'll get back to these five commands at the very end of point one. But for the, the bulk of point one of waking up, I want to give you Five reasons, I want to give you five reasons why you need to wake up, okay? And then we'll apply it. I'm sorry, four reasons. Four reasons why you need to wake up, and then we'll apply it. So why do we need to wake up, be alert, watchful, strengthen what remains, remember how we receive things from the Lord, uh, keep what we receive from the Lord, and repent? Why do we need to do these things? Four reasons. Reason number one is in verse one, the second part of verse one. Jesus says, I know your works, church at Sardis. You have a reputation for being what? Alive, but you are, you're dead. Why do you need to wake up? Because you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So the way I summarize this first reason is you need to wake up because Jesus sees through you. He sees through your facade. He sees through your reputation. He sees through your Sunday face that you might put on when you come together with your church family. A good name is worthless before God if a good name is just a facade. If all you have is a reputation and people think well of you, if that's all you have, that's worthless. Better to be truly well than well thought of. To have it true and real in your life. Because you cannot avoid being misunderstood in this world. You might as well stop trying to impress other people and just be honest with them. Though their reputation is, though this church's reputation is a life, a reputation of life, this is a church that's alive. This is a church that is vital. This is a church that's healthy. It's growing. Look at all the people. Look at all the money. Look at all the activities. Look at the singing. Look at the way this church lives and look at their impact on the community. All of these signs of life, all of these, all this reputation for being a live, vibrant church, and Jesus sees right through it. This church is unhealthy, it's dead though it has a reputation, to the contrary. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not addressing here false churches. 
A false church would be a church that does not preach the true gospel or has heretical doctrine or practices the ordinances in a way that saves, like baptism saves you or the Lord's Supper gives grace to you apart from faith. Those would be false churches, okay? So when Jesus says this church is, it has a reputation for being alive and vibrant, but it's dead, he's not talking about churches like, like Joel Osteen's church where the gospel is not preached or T.D. Jake's church where the gospel, where the, where the Trinity is denied. He's not talking about false churches. He's talking about true churches that, that have the right gospel and yet, they are dying. They're declining, even though they look vibrant. But let's not focus on other churches that are vibrant. Let's focus on our own church, right? Bethany Baptist Church. Let's look at the log in our own eye instead of looking at the, church, the, the logs in other people's eyes. So let's go to the second reason. Second reason why you need to wake up. First reason is because Jesus sees through your good reputation. Second reason why you need to wake up is because what remains in verse 2 be alert and strengthen what remains because it is about to what? Look at verse two. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. You need to wake up because what you actually have that's good is about to die. So Jesus actually nuances verse one. You can't stop in verse one. He says in verse one, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now, are they completely dead? No, because verse two says there are things that you have that are about to die. Be careful, brothers and sisters, when you read the Bible. Be careful not to take a verse out of context and, and run with one theme and you run over another verse. You have to read the Bible in its complete context. So when Jesus says you're dead in verse 1, you say, but he says you're dead, so you have to be dead. Well, verse 2, he's nuancing it. He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to wake them up. You're about to die. You have, you're not a dead church yet. You're not a false church, but your church is dying. You, your members are dying, okay? So it's about to die. There's still a little bit of life. So, so be encouraged. This church isn't dead yet. The church isn't dead yet, church at Sardis. And yet, they're about to die. It's like having expired milk. Not spoiled yet, but it's about to expire. It's about to go bad. You know it's inevitable. Um, and so it's about to die. That, that's how the church is. It's like, um, you know, we went on a trip to Washington, D.C. last week. Some of you prayed for us. We had to empty our fridge and check, do we have milk that's going to expire? Because no one's going to be here for the next six days. And so we check for it, and you're, you're, we're very sensitive to the expiration date. And you feel it, and you make adjustments based on the expiration date. Well, this church had an expiration date that was soon. They were dying. They were about to die, and yet they were completely asleep. They didn't have a clue they're about to die and expire. So Jesus says, wake up because what you, what you have, what remains, is about to die. Now, the reason why we need to listen to Jesus in this is because Jesus not only has the seven stars, he also has the seven, go back to verse one, he has the seven stars, he also has the seven spirits. And the seven spirits is who? The Holy Spirit. If you're saying, ah, I don't know, the Holy Spirit's not seven, he's one. Seven is the number for completion, especially in Revelation, and go back to, if you want to look at Revelation 1, verse um, 4, John says, um, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who was, who is, and who is to come, the Father, and from the seven spirits of God, and from Jesus Christ. So Father, Jesus, and the seven spirits. So that, that, would, that would indicate in verse, chapter 1, verse 4, that the seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a way of speaking of the Holy Spirit. But here's the point. Jesus has the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, what's the main 
activity. What's the main thing? I'm going to test your systematic theology here for a second. What's the main activity that the Holy Spirit does? What does He give? Anyone? What does the Holy Spirit give? Someone want to guess out loud? It's okay if you're wrong. There's no penalty here. I won't remember. Comfort. Okay, He does give comfort. That's not what I'm looking for, but that's true. What else? Faith. He does give faith. Conviction. Eternal life. Okay, yeah, and then, so um, Graham Cole has this book. There's these big books on evangelical theology. And for the Holy Spirit doctrine, he calls it, this, the name of his book is called The Spirit Who Gives Life. Because that's the main activity that the Holy Spirit does. He gives life. Now, just think about it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Life is about to spring up in creation all over the earth. But, but why? Because the Holy Spirit is hovering over the watery depths, and life is about to spring forth by the Holy Spirit. Then you get God forming Adam, a, a clay man, an inanimate object on the floor. And what does God do? He breathes life. And the word for breath is the word for spirit. He gives the spirit to Adam, and then Adam lives. He gives life. What about Moses? Do you remember Moses was empowered by the Holy Spirit and the 70 elders were, were feasting before God on Mount Sinai and the Spirit indwelt all of them? So much so that Joshua got jealous for Moses. He said, he said Moses, tell them all to stop prophesying. You're the only one, who's, you're the special mediator. And Moses looks at Joshua and says, I wish all of these people had the Holy Spirit. Would, would that God would give them all the Holy Spirit, which is what he does in the new covenant, right? But not then. But the Spirit is the one who gives life and vibrancy and health. In the book of Judges, you have normal people like Gideon or Othniel who are normal people, and then the Holy Spirit takes over them, and they become courageous and powerful, and they deliver the people of God against their enemies in the book of Judges. Even King David, before he was the king, he was actually anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16. Saul was still the official king, but David was the anointed king. In 1 Samuel 16, and it says when, when Samuel pours the oil on David, the Spirit of God came upon him. And how, so, so now he has power, life, vibrancy, so that when Goliath stands up in the very next chapter and says, who will face me? Everyone is chicken, except for one person. The one who has the Spirit of God, the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what an anointed one is. David steps up. Because he has the Holy Spirit of God giving life and power and courage and vibrancy. And then you get the, the vision in Ezekiel 37 of the, of the dry bones. You know that vision? There's the dry bones, and, and he asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? And, the, and then Ezekiel in the vision says, I don't know, Lord, you know. And he's like, preach to the bones. Okay. So Ezekiel starts preaching God's word to bones, and the bones start coming together. And then you have skeletons, and then flesh comes on the bones, but they're inanimate. And then the Spirit of God comes, and they live. And you have an army of God. That's Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 36, what did God promise in the new covenant? I will give you a new spirit. I'll put my spirit within you, and I will cause you, 
I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Where do we get life? The Holy Spirit. Where do we get obedience? The Holy Spirit. Where do we get the, the care to carefully obey God's word? Not just sloppily in general obey God, but carefully read his word and obey everything he commands in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, in our singleness, at work. Where do we get the impetus and the power to obey God in the small things of life? From the Holy Spirit. That was promised in the new covenant. And then Jesus comes. And before Jesus starts his public ministry, what does he do? He goes to the Jordan River. He meets John and he gets what? Baptized. He gets immersed in the water. And as he comes up out of the water, who descends from heaven onto Jesus? The Holy Spirit. And only then does Jesus begin his public ministry to take on Satan in the wilderness and then start preaching publicly. Because the Spirit gives life and power. And then when Jesus leaves, the church is scared. They're timid. They're intimidated. They're hiding in the upper room. And then a loud sound comes, a crash, as they're praying. And there's fiery flames on top of their heads, and they start speaking in different languages, tongues. And then the crowd comes around. And they're, what happened? And what does Peter say? Who, who just came down on the day of Pentecost? the Holy Spirit, and now the church has life, has power to share the gospel, and they begin to spread the gospel. So the church was empowered at Pentecost. And then you, when you got saved, how did you get saved? The Holy Spirit gave you faith. He gave you repentance. He opened your eyes, and then he gave you life. He caused you to be born again. You're born of the Holy Spirit. He gave you eternal life. That doesn't happen after you die. It happens when you got converted. You were born again and given life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and now he helps us to walk in his ways. He helps the church at Sardis walk in his ways, which is why if you have incomplete works, it doesn't make sense. If you're sleeping and you're dead and dying, it's like you don't have the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits in his right hand, and he tells you, church, wake up. I have the Holy Spirit. I give the Holy Spirit. And I've given some of you, I've given you the Holy Spirit. Why are you dying? Why are you not finishing the works I gave you to do? Why are you sleeping at the wheel? Wake up. Jesus is calling the church to wake up and, and he wants to empower us afresh by his Holy Spirit. When we hear the, how do you, how do you get power, empowered by the Holy Spirit? You hear the word of the Spirit. Oh, let's just go to verse 6 now, even though um, we can cover it at any point. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Who's speaking through Revelation 3, 1 through 6? Who's speaking right now as we're reading this text? The Holy Spirit is speaking. Jesus is speaking, verse 1, but also in verse 6, the Holy Spirit is speaking. So how do you get pow empowered by the Holy Spirit with life? You listen to the word of the Lord. You listen to the Holy Spirit as he shows you Jesus, and that gives you power and life. So the second reason why you need to wake up is because what remains is about to die. And God, Jesus, is the one who gives us spirit. He gives life. The third reason why you need to wake up, if you're taking notes here on wake up, third reason to wake up is because, I kind of previewed this already, your works are incomplete. Because your works are incomplete. Look at verse 2. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. Why? Here's the reason. It's giving you the word for, so that's giving you the reason. Why do you need to wake up, be alert, and strengthen what remains, which is about to die? For I have not found your works, what? I have not found your works, what? Complete before my God. 
So we need to wake up because we have incomplete works. The church at Sardis had incomplete works. Their city was a city of incomplete works and high reputation. Sardis was known as the impregnable city, the city that could never be overtaken. That was their reputation. It's the one city that no army can invade and take because if you looked at the city from afar, most cities were on hills and there were many cliffs that were friable material and they would break away and it was so steep to get there that no army could could get up there to invade the city of Sardis. So the city of Sardis had a reputation. Remember, Jesus talking about the church's reputation. The city of Sardis had a reputation that it could never be overtaken. In 95 AD, when this is being written, the reputation of Sardis is it's the, it's the untakeable city. You can't take it. It's just too strong. Now, the problem is, if you knew your history, was the city was already taken twice. So what good is reputation of not being, take, like not being takeable when you actually have been taken twice? Okay, it looks impenetrable. It is hard to do it, but armies have done it in the past. Don't rely on your reputation as the untakeable city when you've already been taken twice. It makes no sense to rely on that reputation. In a similar way, the church was relying, oh, other churches think we're strong. Maybe our Southern Baptist Convention thinks we're strong. Maybe our association thinks we're strong. Maybe other churches in the area and other pastors think our church is strong. And you could rely on the reputation that you have individually or we have as a church when you're not really what you think you are. That's what Sardis was. And not only are they have the reputation, which I'm going back to the earlier part, but the second thing is they were known as a city of incomplete works. This city of Sardis had, it's one of the two great temples to Artemis in the Roman Empire. The other one is in Ephesus. You'll remember that from Acts 18, the riot at Ephesus where Paul is gospelizing there and there was a riot because of Artemis of the Ephesians. Remember that? Well, the other great temple to Artemis was in Sardis, but it wasn't as great as the temple in Ephesus. You know why? Because it wasn't completed. You had an incomplete temple in Sardis that was famously or infamously incomplete. Here they were, the great city with Artemis, their great God, and they had an incomplete temple to their God. They had a reputation of incompleteness. They had a reputation of impenetrability, and those were infamous reputations. Now, Jesus is not talking to the city of Sardis. He's talking to the church at Sardis. He's saying, you church, you have incomplete works. What were the incomplete works at Sardis? The short answer is we don't know for sure. Jesus doesn't tell us. One commentator, my favorite commentator on this, G.K. Beale, thinks it's they were not witnessing to non-Christians. I don't know how he sees that in the passage. I mean, it's true that there's something the church needs to do. I don't know how he gets that specific. I'm not that confident that that's specifically. That could be true. They could be not sharing the gospel. That certainly would be incomplete. A church not gospelizing is an incomplete. A church that's not completely doing their job, right? So I don't know what it is, but we do know that the Holy Spirit is given to the church, we talked about this, to give life and to help the church finish their works, to carefully obey what Christ has commanded. So I don't know what the specific incompletion is, but I think I could guess, my, I'm fairly confident that what's incomplete here, what John has in mind, is an incomplete temple. Why? Two reasons. One is because Sardis had an incomplete temple, so it's already kind of known in the city. But secondly, the, um, John is alluding to, to Zechariah chapter 
4. So if, you, if you're fast enough in your Bible, turn to the left in your Bible, go past Matthew into the Old Testament, and look for Zechariah, right before Matthew. So if you have Matthew, you're going to go to Malachi, and then right before Malachi, um, you'll see Zechariah. So just before Matthew is Zechariah. Go to Zechariah chapter 4. You could check off that you read a passage from Zechariah this year for 2019. If you didn't read it, if you didn't read Zechariah in 2018, here's your Zechariah reading for 2019, okay? Zechariah chapter 4. I'm going to read a huge chunk here, verses 2 to 10. But I want you to hear, I want you to hear Revelation 3, 1 through 6 in this passage. Let me give you one more clue before I read it. There's a man here named Zerubbabel. He's the main character, Zerubbabel. I'm just going to call him Z for the sake of not saying his name over and over again, okay? Now, Z is famous in Old Testament history as the one who rebuilt the temple. He's the one who rebuilds the temple that's, that was destroyed by the Babylonians, okay? So this is about rebuilding the temple. So listen to Zechariah 4, verses 2 through 10. He asked me, what do you see? I replied, I see a solid golden lampstand, gold lampstand with a bowl at the top. That sounds like Revelation. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven spouts for each of the lamps. That sounds like Revelation, right? Uh, verse 3, there are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. That sounds like Revelation 11. Then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? Do, don't you know what they are, replied the angel who was speaking with me? I said, no, my Lord. So he answered me, here's what it is. This is the word of the Lord to, to Z. Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by what? My spirit. We're talking about the Holy Spirit here. You will not do it by strength. You will not do it by might. You'll do it by the Spirit. What will you do? Says the Lord of armies. What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this what? House. What's the house referring to? The what? The temple. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will what? Get this word. His hands will what? Complete it. Complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. For who despises the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hands. Now, it says the seven eyes of the Lord. Do you know that in Revelation 5, 6, the seven eyes of the Lord are the seven spirits of God? So here you have the seven spirits of God in the seven eyes. Revelation 5, 6 says the seven eyes of, the Lord, of, the, of, the, of Jesus, the Lamb, are the seven spirits of God. So here you have the Spirit of God helping Zerubbabel to do what? To complete what? The what? The temple. And now Jesus looks at the church in Sardis and says... Your works are not complete, and I have the seven spirits of God. What have they not completed? The what? The temple. Now, what is the temple? Is it the church building? Oh, this is a great building project passage, right? Preach this passage when we have a building project, because Revelation 3, 1 through 6 is complete the building project. Well, it depends what you mean by building. If you mean a building like this, that's not the new covenant temple. What is the new covenant temple? Human beings. And which human beings? The church, the church, of the local church is the temple. So what is the church at Sardis failing to do? They have failed to build up the church. They are, they are neglecting the, each other, and they're neglecting the mission of the church. And for that, Jesus holds them accountable. 
You know, churches are, to complete a church, you need to preach the gospel. I'll just give you some marks of a healthy church. More than nine, okay? Preach the gospel. Preach the Bible. Our church is preaching the gospel. Is our church preaching scripture? Are we teaching and learning biblical and systematic theology? Are we clearly articulating the gospel? Do we understand conversion? Do we practice gospelizing non-believers and believers, bringing them to faith and repentance? Do we practice meaningful membership in this church? Do we care for each other's needs? Do we try to meet each other's needs spiritually and physically? And do we know each other's needs? Do we communicate them to each other? Do we practice loving and courageous church discipline for restoration? Do we have a biblical leadership structure at this church? Do we pray as a church? Do we love our neighbors? Do we cooperate with other churches to plant and revitalize other churches? Are we engaged in world missions as a church? Do we have pro-life social care, care for the unborn, care for those with disability, care, care for those with special needs, care for those in broken homes, care for those in foster care, care for those who need adoption, care for immigrants, whether they have papers or not, care for systemic ethnocentric oppression, what we call racism, care for the elderly, care for end-of-life issues, care for religious liberty, even those with religions that we disagree with. Are we for life? Are we pro-life? in all of these ways? Or is it only, only in some of these things and we leave the other things uncared for, incomplete, no burden, no concern of ours? Jesus says, you're about to die. You got a little bit there, church at Sardis. You got some there, Bethany Baptist Church, but you need to complete what remains, which is about to die because your works are not complete before the Lord. Now, by God's grace, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, we have cleaned our membership role, essentially. Um, we have grown in our love and practice of church discipline. We're actually in the process right now because we have, we're, we're growing in, our way, in that way as a church. We have been meeting each other's needs and sharing each other's needs. We need to do that more, but we'll always need to do that as a church. But we are growing in that, and we are confessing our sins to each other and trying to fight personal sin and grow in Christ. But is there anything that we need to complete as a church family? Or are we complete? <laughs> there are things we need to complete, right? Yeah. Let me give you a few. We're working on the new bylaws so that we can have a plurality of pastors in a church. The New Testament pattern is for a plurality of pastors. Our church is incomplete in that regard. A corporate devotion to prayer and praying for fellow members. Sunday night is not the only barometer, but if Sunday night prayer meeting is a barometer for our church's fervency in prayer as a church, then I would say that we're incomplete in our praying as a church. And in the personal practice of gospelizing neighbors and friends, do we neglect to do that? Are we, are we complete in doing that? Are we caring for our neighbor's physical needs as well in all the pro-life ways I just mentioned? Or do we just pick a few hobby horses and, and neglect the rest? Are we complete as a church? I'm not saying you as an individual. You don't have to be passionate for all of those, all 500 things that we need to be passionate for. You can have one thing that you're passionate for, but you should still care about the other things. And you should have a church whereas a body of Christ cares for all these other things, even if you don't personally lead up every single ministry in our church. So that's the third reason. The fourth reason why we need to wake up, wake up because Jesus is going to come in judgment. Look at verse 3. Go back to Revelation chapter 3. Verse 3. Why do you need to wake up? Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a what? I'll come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour, come, what hour I will come upon you. Jesus is saying, I'm going to come like a thief. You don't know when I'm coming, and I'm coming to judge. If you don't wake up, if you don't strengthen what remains, if you're not alert, I will come and judge you. I will come in judgment. 
Jesus does judge Christians and churches. He wipes out churches. He does judge Christians. Some Christians even die and get sick because of their sin physically and die early, earlier than they would have because they don't wake up. That happened to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Paul warns about that in, in 1 Corinthians 11 with the way you take communion in an unworthy manner. It happens. And Jesus says, I will come. You keep messing around with your Christian life and you keep saying you're a Christian and you keep leaving incomplete and you're content with your incomplete works, I'll come like a thief and judge you. That's what it means. It's not talking about the second coming. It's talking about discipline, even taking life and maybe even condemning to hell if, if you're not really Christian. So we need to feel this threat that Christ is our judge and he sees through you and he sees through us as a church. So let me apply this before we move to our second point. Let me apply this. Here are the, the five commands. Let, let me just give a brief application on some of these with one that's not with a little bit more beefed up. Be alert and wake up. So what am I saying there? Church, church member, Christian, wake up, be alert, walk carefully, obey God's commands. Identify what you're not obeying and obey those commands. You know what you're not obeying. What have you left undone? What are you leaving undone in your Christian life? What, what's the one thing you keep saying, I'll do it tomorrow? I'll do it next week. I'll do it next month. It's the same thing, right? You've said it for many, you've said it for many weeks. You've said it for many months. Incomplete. And God has given you the power of His omnipotent Holy Spirit to enable you to complete the works. That's no, so be alert and strengthen what remains. And the next one, strengthen what remains. Identify your good works and keep doing the good while you shore up where you're incomplete. Third thing here, remember how you have received. You see that in verse 3? Remember then what you have received and heard. Okay, let me um, encourage all the King James and New King James readers. King James has it right. CSB has it wrong. There, it's on the record again, okay? King James has it right. CSB, NIV, ESV, they all get it wrong here. It's not remember what you have received and heard. It's remember how you received and heard. It's how, not what. What does it mean, remember how you received and heard? Now, I, remember, I know why they said what, because it says keep it. So keep what? But it's not, but the word in the remember is not how, it's not what, it's how. Remember how you have received and heard. Now, when you heard the gospel, how did you receive it? How did you hear it? In 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, let me describe to you how they heard the gospel. And think about how you heard the gospel when you first became a Christian. You, this is what Paul says. You welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. When you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God. Do you remember when you heard the word and it wasn't just a, a person's opinion? It was really God's word coming to you and you sensed, this is God speaking to me. Which also works effectively among you who believe and you have suffered. Do you remember that when you received God's word, you were willing to do whatever God called you to do, even if it meant suffering, even if it meant opposition? Remember how you received what you received. Remember how you were when you heard the word of the Lord. And then the next one is keep it. Keep what you rec you've received. If you receive the gospel, you receive the Bible, you receive the teaching, the apostolic doctrine, keep it. Keep obeying it. Keep holding to it. Keep coming back to it. And then repent. Repent. That means admit that you're wrong, confess your sin, and ask God to forgive you, and ask God's Holy Spirit to change you. If I had to summarize what it means to wake up, it means be filled by the Holy Spirit. Be filled by the Holy Spirit in these ways. Now, if you have not repented from your sins and trusted in Christ, if you would not call yourself a Christian, here's what God is telling you. You need to wake up as well. Because not only are your works incomplete, you are dead. It's not like you're about to die. 
you're dead. If you're not a Christian, you don't have life in you, not eternal life, and judgment is coming. And so Jesus is calling you to repent from your sins and trust in Him because God is the gospel. Hey, if you're not a Christian, listen. if you don't remember anything else, listen for this one minute. God is the good news. What do I mean that God is the good news? God is the creator. He made you and He loves you. But God is not only creator, He's the court. He's the supreme court. He's the justices and He is the court. He's the whole system. He will judge you for your sins and you are a sinner damned before Him. But He's not only the creator and the court, He's Christ. God becomes a man while remaining truly God, and He dies for sinners. He lives the life we should live, and He dies for sins and rises from the dead to save sinners from their sins. And God is King. He rules as King. He rose from the dead and is the resurrected King so that if you repent from your sins and trust in this King, this King will offer you peace. He will give you life. He'll give you His Holy Spirit. So if you're not a Christian, repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ even this morning. If you say, you know what, um, I don't want to believe in Jesus because I believe in a God of love, not a God of judgment. You talk about hell and judgment. I don't want to believe in a God of judgment. I, I believe in a God of love. Let me give you a brief answer. Love and justice go together. If you lose justice, you lose love. And if you lose, lose love, you lose justice. The two go together. What do I mean they go together? You don't desire justice for people you don't care about. Only when you care is when you desire justice, right? So if there's a big problem going on in the world, you might not care about it. But if someone hurts one of your family members, someone you love with that injustice, what are you going to do? You're going to fight for justice. Why? Because you love. When you love someone and they are victimized by an injustice, you care and you want to defend them. In other words, you can't have justice, injustice is shown, when, I mean, the, your care for justice is shown because you love. If you don't love, you don't care for justice. Right? So if you say, well, I don't want a God of judgment, I just want a God of love. Well, if someone beside you, someone you loved, was being horrifically oppressed and victimized and, 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 um, and abused, and you didn't want judgment, then you don't love them. Amen. Right? If you don't care, there's no, there's no turning in your heart and, and compassion, then you don't have love. If you want a God of love, you must have a God of justice. Amen. And vice versa as well. Um, um, if, if you don't have justice, if you don't, yeah, if you don't have justice, wait, hold on. If you don't have love, sorry, I'm getting mixed up in my mind. You can't love people if you don't have justice. And if you do love people, you must demand justice. That's the other side of it. If you love people, you must demand justice. And that's what, that's what God does. Why does God judge? Because he loves. He loves his people. He loves his creation. He loves his glory. And so he cannot be indifferent to our sins. Okay, that's number one. That's a long one. Wake up. And, la and uh, four through six, stay up. Stay up. Now, encouragement here, look at verse four, verses four through six, stay up. Verse four says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. So is every Christian member of the church in Sardis sleeping? No. Do they have a whole lot of people who are awake and haven't defiled their clothes? No. What does Jesus call it? A few. You got a few there. Your church is mostly dying. Your church is declining. Most people are insensitive to the Holy Spirit working in their lives. But you got a few there who are continually trying to 
carefully obey Christ's commands. They are continually repenting from their sins and trusting Christ afresh and confessing their sin and going hard after Jesus and growing in their love for God, for each other, and for their neighbors and the nations. You do got a few there. Be encouraged. Bethany Baptist Church, I'm not saying you have a few. God knows. But we have, I would say we have many here. My pastoral assessment, finite knowledge, I think we have many who are like this, who have not defiled their clothes. And so because they haven't defiled their clothes, what's the reward? I have three reasons why you need to stay up. Reason number one, why should you stay up? Because you will walk with Jesus in white clothes. Look at verse four. They have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in what? In white, because they're worthy, and then continue in verse 5, first part of verse 5. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in what? White clothes. So why should you stay up? Because if you stay up, and you stay alert, and you keep obeying God and, and trusting the Holy Spirit and repenting and trusting in Christ, if you keep doing that and you stay up, you will walk with Jesus in white. You will be dressed in white clothes. Now, these white clothes, what does white represent? Give me your best guess, quickly. What's, what do white clothes represent? Purity. What else? Holiness, and there's one more that no one's going to get here. Righteousness, that's their holiness. What else? Perfection, Perfection heinousness? Someone say hey. innocence. Okay, I was like heinousness, white heinousness. No, innocence. No, yes, innocence. Anything else? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you three things, and you got two of them in a lot of different words. One is purity, one is righteousness, and the third is victory. White clothes represent victory. Now, let's go. So purity is obvious, right? In Revelation 7, 13, and 14, um, John sees these people who are outside the tribulation, God's people, and, and he says, who are these? And he's our, the, um, the angel says to John, these people, this is Revelation 7, 13, and 14, these are the ones who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the, of the lamb, of the lamb, right? Of the lamb. They made the blood of the lamb. And so here, how do you wash your clothes? In, in, in the death of who? In the death of Christ, in the gospel. So if you have white clothes, it's because you you're trust in Christ. You believe in the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not only that, Revelation 19.8 says the righteous acts are the fine linen, are the white clothes. But let me also tell you it's victory. So it's not only your righteous acts and your purity, it's also victory. You know why? Because back in the day, praise be to God that it's not that way this, in these days, but the, the, the athletic games were only for men because you ran naked. You ran naked. So you competed naked, and you'd run your race naked, and the winner gets white clothes, and the losers are naked. <laughs> but the winners, I mean, the winners, the winner gets, I'm not sure if they, I'm sure they can put clothes on after the, the contest, but the point is the winner is rewarded with white clothes. White clothes were the symbol of conquering of victory. And that's what Revelation 2 and 3 is all about. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who wins, to the one who defeats Satan and sin in their church and in the world. To the one who wins, he gets white clothes. So Jesus is saying, why should you stay up? Because you get white clothes. You get the white raiment. Second reason why you need to stay up is because your name is secure in the book of life. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, in the same way, I read the white clothes part, and Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will never erase his name from the what? Book of life. So why should you stay up? Because you will have your name, you'll know that your name is secure in the book of life. Because Jesus will never erase your name from the book of life. Revelation, what is the book of life? In Revelation, 
Chapter 20, verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter the new creation, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. So the book of life is the registry, it's the record of those who have eternal life, those who are in Christ. And I don't know if you remember the prayer of Moses when God said, you know, with this golden calf thing, I want to wipe out all of Israel. I'm going to start all over with you. And what did Moses pray in Exodus 32, verse 32? He said, now if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase my name from the book you've written. Moses, there's that idea of, of erasing. God, erase my name from the book so that you would forgive Israel for their idolatry. Now, we might ask the normal question, can you lose your salvation, right? Because if, you, if your name was written, P.J. Tobian, and then it's erased, so, oh, P.J. was saved, and then Jesus erased his name because he did not wake up and stay up. Instead, he stayed asleep and did not complete his works and wasn't really a Christian, so, so Jesus erases his name. Does that mean P.J. lost his salvation? Does that mean you lose your salvation? No, you cannot lose your salvation because our statement of faith says so. No, I'm just kidding. Our statement of faith does say that. But we don't believe in our statement of faith as the inerrant word of God. Our statement of faith matches the Bible. Romans 8, 28 to 30, um, 29 and 30, Jesus, uh, Paul says, Those whom God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. glorified. Everyone who's predestined is called. Everyone who's called is justified. Everyone who's justified is glorified. You don't get justified and then lose it, lose your salvation and not get glorified. Amen. You're justified by faith alone. And if you're justified by faith alone, you will be glorified. Amen. So what does it mean you'll er erase your name then? What it means, and now you might, this is kind of fitting with this, with this letter. If you're overconfident, well, I got saved this many years ago, so I can't have my name erased, so I'm not going to go to hell even if I don't complete the works. That's when you're in danger, right? Because you're resting on your reputation. You're resting on the past. This is given so that you can have confidence now that your name is in the book of life. What you did in the past is good. Praise the Lord for it. But do not rest on your past good works. That is a recipe for disaster spiritually. Your confidence of your faith in Christ and your assurance of your salvation rests on the gospel message, rests on God's assurance of hope to come. That's not changeable, but it also rests in your personal obedience today to God's Word. So, this... This your name will be erased. Why does he say that? So that you will be sobered into finishing. He's trying to wake you up and keep you up so that you're sober into finishing. The op opposite of being sober is being what? Drunk and unalert. This warning of erasing, er erasure, is not that you lose your salvation. It's saying, in effect, if you were erased, that you were never really saved. You need to wake up and be sobered into finishing well. That's the second reason. Okay, so stay up because... Uh, you'll have white clothes and you won't be naked. Um, secondly, you'll, you'll be victorious. Secondly, wake, uh, stay up because your name, so you can know that your name is secure. And lastly, stay up because Jesus will confess your name in heaven before the Father. Look at verse 5 again. I will never erase his name from the book of life, but I will what? Acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus will acknowledge your name. This is all about name. They had a reputation of a name. Um, and so that, in verse 1, it says, um, 
you have a name for being alive, but you're dead. In verse 4, it says, uh, um, I'm sorry, in verse 5, he says, I'll never erase his name. And then he says, I will acknowledge your name before the Father in heaven. So this, it's really about your name. Who are you? Your name is who you are, right? Who are you? Your name is who you are. And what Jesus thinks about your name is, is who you are. Not your reputation. But if you are who Jesus thinks, if you are, um, if Jesus thinks and Jesus considers you one of his own, what will he do on the final judgment? He will represent you. He will acknowledge you before the Father in heaven. But if you don't stay up to the end, if you flame out, then he will not acknowledge you before his Father in heaven. Do you remember that? We, we heard it from Mark chapter 8 or Luke 9 a few weeks ago from our Scotsman who preached here about where, where take up your cross daily and follow him, follow Christ. And Jesus says there, if you are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. The one who does not finish to the end and gives up on following Jesus, it's because you're ashamed of Jesus. And Jesus will be ashamed of you in the final judgment. But for, if you stay up, he will confess your name before heaven. So there's an there's a impetus and desire, uh, encouragement to stay up. So Christian, don't let the rest of the world pull you down. Don't let the church pull you down. Even if there's only a few of you who are faithful, stay faithful all the way to the end. Stay up, wake up, and stay up. If they defiled their garments by sleeping in sin, your church members do that, don't defile your garments. Church family, what does this mean for us? Let's keep moving our church in the right direction. Let's keep completing the works that we're doing. Come to the members meeting today and keep working and exercising the keys of the kingdom as we seek to be a faithful church. And keep encouraging members of our church, keep encouraging members of our church to, um, to move in the right direction. Especially if you see future pastor elders, um, future pastor elders, future deacons and deaconesses, uh, encourage them. If you're not a Christian, here's my encouragement to you. Jesus will give you the power to stay up. He will, but you need to come to him first. So to close, here's the call to action. Wake up and stay up. Identify the incomplete work in your life and your responsibilities, your incomplete responsibilities, and see it through to completion. Wake up, stay up. If you don't, our church will be weakened and, continue, and, and, and decline and die, and we will be a useless church for God's kingdom. We don't want to be a useless church, but we could be. Not only that, even worse, we will grow in our deception, and the disaster of judgment will come on some of our, our fellow members if we're not alert and helping each other. But if you wake up and stay up, and you follow through on the works God's calling you to, you will grow in vitality as a church. Our church will be flourishing with life, real life, not just the reputation, but real life. We will be confident in knowing what God wants us to do, and we'll completely do it, and we will have the reward of white clothes, a name in the book of life, and Jesus acknowledging us before the Father in heaven. Do you remember Jesus was awake in Matthew chapter 26 at the Garden of Gethsemane? He told his disciples there, he said, guys, stay awake, pray with me. He even told them, the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then he would pray. He'd go back to his disciples, and they were what? Sleeping. Sleeping. He'd go back to pray. He'd come back and wake them up. He'd say, stay awake and pray with me. He'd wake up Peter and the rest of the disciples. They'd be all groggily waking up, and then they'd fall right back asleep. And he says, um, he says stay awake because the, the, the enemy is coming. Satan is coming. 
And then he wakes up. Then after his third prayer, Jesus fully is Jesus alert. Is he is he awake? Yes. Is he awake? He's awake. He's alert. He's waking up. He's staying up. Jesus is wide awake here. He is sensing the spiritual battle, but not so the disciples. And so what did they do when Satan attacked them when Jesus was arrested? Did they boldly stand for Jesus and go to prison with him? No, they scattered and they fled. They abandoned Jesus in their sleepiness. They abandoned Jesus in their sleepiness. And when you abandon Jesus and you deny Jesus, what do you deserve? Death. But instead of them getting death, Jesus is the one who died that next day. He died on the cross for sins. Did he not? He was the alert one. He was the awake one, and yet he was the one who was damned and judged on the cross. In effect, Jesus, actually not even in effect, in reality, Jesus was naked so that we would be clothed. Amen. Jesus was, was not, Jesus was erased in a sense from life in that moment. He was put in darkness. It was black. It was pitch black there. He was blotted out in those three hours in darkness so that our names would never be erased from the book of life. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father forsook Jesus before the angels so that Jesus would acknowledge us and the Father would acknowledge us in heaven forever. So, brothers and sisters... As a church family, let us wake up and stay up because we have a Savior who died for us and gives us His Spirit and His power so that we would not fall asleep. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you'd cleanse us from our negligence, our incomplete works, and our sins. Forgive us. Please forgive us. We repent before you. We confess our incomplete works. We pray that you'd wake us up to be alert, to strengthen what remains. We pray that we would remember how we have received what we received, that we would keep it. We pray for your help now. We thank you for the amazing gift unspeakable gift, your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would trust in His words as He speaks to us, that we here who have ears to hear would listen to what your Spirit is saying to us as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's our practice in this church to take